Hi, my name is Nicole Dan, and I'm an interview editor for the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. Recently, I had the chance to talk to geopolitics fellow Stephanie Valencia, who is the founder of Equis Labs, an organization that invests in leaders and ideas that will create a more active, powerful Latinx electorate. We discussed the Latinx electorate, the Democratic primary, and public engagement. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So can you just start off by introducing yourself? What are you doing at Georgetown this semester? I'm Stephanie Valencia. I am a GU Politics Fellow for fall 2019. I am the current co-founder of Equis Labs, a political startup focused on creating a better understanding of the Latinx community. And I've spent the last 15 years in and out of democratic and progressive politics and kind of the tech world. So you've done a lot of work to empower the Latinx electorate and enhance civic participation. What are some successful ways to do that? I think the first thing we have to really understand about the Latino community, which is the fastest growing part of the population, you know, we see our population in the United States really shifting very rapidly. Like as boomers get older, new population growth is being fueled by U.S. born Latinos in this country. And so truly understanding how do we find ways to engage that community in civic participation and democracy and politics is a very important thing. Obviously, for me, I want them to be Democrats <laughs> and progressives, but there is, uh, you know, an important um, need to have a conversation with this particular community that is the fastest growing part of our population. I think that what's interesting to, to kind of understand is the nuance that exists within the Latino community and anybody who wants to understand this community now heading into 2020 or beyond is to understand that the number of generations that you have been in this country, whether your parents or you were the first generation to be in this country, or like me and my family, I'm the 10th generation New Mexican. And so I never had a direct immigration experience in my life that we may see the world a little bit differently. Spanish language dominance versus English language dominance versus speaking both languages at home. Uh, understanding the difference between a Cuban and a Puerto Rican and a Colombian and a Mexican and a Salvadoran. And as we see more and more growth of the community, a lot of more intermixing of who those people are. So now you can be an Afro-Latina who is half Colombian and half Puerto Rican. And so where do all of those identities play into her participation in democracy and civic participation? So that's what we're trying to figure out. And I think that the number one takeaway for anybody who wants to communicate with Latinos or Latinxes or Hispanics, whatever we want to call them or call ourselves, is that there is a lot of nuance and we are not a monolith. Can you tell us more about uh, Equis Labs and what you do there? So Equis Labs, Equis is like the letter X in Spanish or the X in Latinx, which is something that a lot of people are starting to kind of use to identify the community with. Um, and the X really represents being the X factor in politics and society and a lot left to be understood about who the community is, as I talked about before. We are working to create that better understanding of who that the Latino electorate is and investing in new innovative approaches to reach and engage them, specifically using digital data and tech tools. You know, there's a lot of nuance to understand. And as we see more and more people people spending their time online using platforms like WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. It's really important to understand 
how we reach people, who we're reaching through these different platforms, and finding ways to engage people who haven't historically been engaged in the process. And digital uh, gives us a unique opportunity to reach people where they are, which is on their phones or through their computer, where there's more and more people are getting their information and spending time online. So you've worked in both the private and public sector. Did you find one was more inclusive than the other? What was it like to be a Latinx person in both of those? Yeah, I think everybody in this country right now is struggling to understand diversity in all ways and how we create inclusive, diverse cultures at work, at school, you know, a place here like Georgetown and a place like Google or a political campaign. Um, And what that just really means is diversity on political views, diversity on gender experience, diversity on, um, again, like the immigrant experience or race. And, you know, I think both inside and inside of government, in the progressive movement, and in uh, corporate America, where I've seen everybody really struggle with the question, right? And I think we have a lot of work to do to further increase the levels of diversity that we have in all of those spaces. And like I said, it's diversity and inclusion um, from the perspective of having very diverse viewpoints around a decision-making table. When you have a certain set of people who all have a very similar shared experience, you're going to get a very similar shared outcome. Whereas if you have people who have a very different experience and view of the world, you're going to have a more robust conversation about where we need to get. And I think just the more you have, whether it's a a woman's view of the world or somebody who had the immigrant experience or a Latina or a trans person, it's very important for us to just be able to see and understand the world from multiple perspectives. Can you speak about some of the barriers to public engagement which Latinx people face now? I think, um, you know, traditional barriers to public engagement generally, I think for all communities is just bandwidth. You know, people have the one thing we have not figured out how to create more of is time. And people, you know, everyday people who aren't in politics every day, who are just living and trying to get by and feed their families and create a better life for their kids than they had themselves. It is hard to get people's attention. And it's hard to get people's attention, not not even just for a 30-second video, let alone showing up at a rally or showing up in some other way to participate in democracy. And so I think that is as people become more stretched, as they're working harder, as we have more commitments, family commitments and things like that, we have to really change the culture by which people see their involvement and relation to democracy. What are some of the important tech issues in the Democratic primary? So I think there are a lot of really important issues around technology in the Democratic primary and in the election generally in 2020. One is how we think about using data and digital um, to find and reach new voters, where the ethical lines and how we use and target voters and how the kind of content we're creating and putting in front of people, how we reach them, how we find them. Um, You know, there are a lot of ethical questions about that and a lot of lessons learned from Cambridge Analytica and the kind of data that they had amassed, um, the kind of outside influence that we saw from the Russians in 2016. You know, there are a lot of just questions around what we should allow in politics and elections using tech and digital. Tech and digital allow us to scale that reach in such a bigger way than like a newspaper or television ad used to before. Um, You can just reach far more people using social media uh, and 
digital tools um, than you can in the past. And so as a country, as a Congress, like we have to decide what are those rules and those lines that we want to enforce and where is the right balance between creating speech police of Twitter and Facebook and allowing free speech to be, which is a core principle of who we are as Americans. How do you allow those things to coexist in the same place and who's responsible for for figuring that out. So uh, what do you think about some of the advertising policies that companies like Facebook have where they apply different standards to political ads? And how do you think that affects elections? Well, I think that, um, unfortunately, it kind of really misses the mark. Um, I think that a lot of what we saw in 2016 still today would not necessarily be captured by any of the new platform rules and regulations. Um, Some of them would be because there's more transparency about reporting who's behind what Facebook pages. There's been a lot of work to be done to weed out uh, fake accounts, bots, and things like that that were doing kind of false amplification. Um, And so the platforms are, are cleaning house a lot, but I think... You know, where there is a 10-foot wall, people will find an 11-foot ladder. And so we have to think about ways that that, um, people are going to find ways around these rules and to find the loopholes in which to communicate and get messages to people that still may be nefarious. I think the, the amount of work that the platforms have done has been laudable, and obviously many of them have done that because they are regulating themselves. Congress hasn't really passed any meaningful legislation to focus on that piece. And, and regulating the platforms themselves. But at the end of the day, the, the platforms are taking the necessary steps on their own, whether or not they can keep a pace to what is actually happening on the platforms uh, is, the, is the real question. So I think that one of the barriers to public engagement might be people wanting to vote for people who look like them. This is one of the most diverse democratic primaries we've ever seen. So what, are, what do you think are some strategies for building a diverse leadership bench? Well, I think that um, it's really critically important that we have reflected across the Democratic Party a set of candidates who look like the people that are in our party. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if you are a black candidate that the that the black community is going to support you. I think we saw even um, you know in early two thousand and eight the black community wasn't necessarily around Barack Obama in two thousand and seven. They were mostly supporting Hillary Clinton until he won Iowa, and then we saw the tide change. But all that being said, I think it is very important to have representation in that diverse experience the same way as it is in a corporate boardroom um, to have that diverse uh, viewpoint and experience on the debate stage and in, in the presidential primaries or in elected office. One thing I say about Julian Castro specifically is that so long as Donald Trump is making uh, a mockery of the Latino community and immigrants themselves, it's really important that we have somebody who has that lived experience as a brown man in this country who has faced discrimination himself um, who is from a border state to have that voice represented on a stage and not spoken for us or through us from somebody else who has not had that lived experience. How can political parties improve their Latinx outreach? I really do think we have to become more sophisticated about how we think about the Latinx voter. And historically, we as progressives and Democrats, you know, and I've been working in this space for now 15 years, specifically doing Latinx work, have been able to get away with very um, binary approaches to how we do Latino engagement. 
you either speak English or you speak Spanish. You're either Cuban or you're Mexican. You're either, you know, uh, care about immigration or you don't. And most people just think all Latinos care about immigration, which in our Equis polling have found it's much more nuanced than that. And so I think we really, as Democrats, need to just, again, spend that time trying to create a better understanding of who the electorate is and the nuance that exists within it. You know, Latino voters are much younger today than they were 30 years ago or even 10 years ago when I first started working in the space. The median age of a Latino voter or of a Latino today in this country is 28 years old. The mean age, which is the most common age of a Latino today in this country, is 11 years old. And so we really have to just, again, spend this time understanding the way that different generations in this country within the Latino community uh, understand that identity and speak to it and speak to them on the issues. I'm, I'm not suggesting that it is simply an identity play. I think you have to, identity is a way to open the door and have a conversation with people. But at the end of the day, you have to be there with them on the issues and speaking to them about the issues that matter most in their lives. Is there any candidate, past or present, that has done really well with Latinx outreach? Um, well, since I was Barack Obama's deputy Latino vote director, <laughs> I would say we did a great job. No, but even looking back now, I think would the same tactics and approaches that we used be as valuable today as they were 10 years ago? And the answer is no. You know, it would be interesting to you know, be thinking about how you would construct a Latinx outreach campaign today. But I think that, you know, again, thinking about creative ways of using data to find new unregistered Latino voters is really important because there are just huge amounts, especially in places like Texas and Arizona, huge numbers of unregistered but eligible Latino voters. And then we also have eligible, registered, and non-voting populations that are sizable in those places as well. So how do you motivate those people to vote and get out the door? They're registered to vote. They're just not. And so it really is being creative about finding new ways to reach those new voters and getting them um, to vote. So within the Obama administration, what was it like to work in the Office of Public Engagement? Well, coming into the Office of Public Engagement in 2009, I was one of the first hires in the office. One of the challenges that we had early on, and as I reflect back on the many learnings that I had from my time at the White House, especially the transition of power from the very exciting, exhilarating, powerful campaign, um, was basically, you know, we came in with no tools on day one. We had to leave the campaign email list behind. We had to leave the infrastructure and all the lists that we had built for a different kind of constituency outreach. We literally were starting from scratch when we started at the White House. We were starting from ground zero all over again. And so we had very antiquated systems for how we tracked engagement, for how we were tracking, you know, stakeholders and the people we were interacting with. And, you know, the White House wasn't built for a nimble public engagement operation. We had we had to get special permissions to be using social media and Twitter because it was the first presidency that like actually used Twitter. It's not using Twitter in the same way Donald Trump's using it today. We were very methodical about it in all of their social media platforms. 
but it was very hard to kind of build all that from scratch. And unfortunately, what came of that was the fact that we ultimately did not have as much, uh, the momentum from the campaign did not necessarily translate as quickly as we had hoped um, would translate because we had to start from scratch. And so there were some missed opportunities around momentum and how we translated people's energy and our supporters and volunteers from the campaign to the president's governing agenda. And that drop off from when the election was over to when the inauguration happened happened and when we were governing and we were working through the craziest like financial crisis uh, in history, like all of that um, sucked out some of the momentum that we had built on the campaign and made it really hard to, um, to have to govern and to have to create a public engagement strategy to govern and to pass his agenda. A very little known fact about uh, the administration and doing public engagement work especially when you're trying to pass the president's agenda in Congress, is there um, was something called the Hatch Act, which was basically a law that said, you know, you can't um, do political activity and you can't urge people to lobby from the executive branch. You can't urge people to lobby Congress. In hindsight, and now we see the number of scandals we have from the Trump administration, we were so meticulous about never saying, call your senator or go lobby Congress when we would do conference calls or other kinds of engagements because we didn't want to get in trouble for crossing that line of encouraging people to go lobby Congress, which was against the rules and against the law. And so our inability to actually make that direct ask of people when we were trying to pass health care, when we were trying to pass different parts of the president's agenda through Congress, the DREAM Act, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it was always really hard to do that with one hand behind our back without actually being able to make the direct ask of our supporters. So what role do you think the Office of Public Engagement should play within an administration? Well, I think that um, for any next person who will be part of the, um, you know, Democratic administration, um, I think there's a lot of consolidation and efficiency that can be made between like the outreach efforts of public engagement and the Office of Digital Strategy. One of the things, we had two very siloed organizations um, when we came in and, and the Office of White House Correspondence, which was still receiving hand-mailed letters to the President of the United States and emails, all of the emails that would come to whitehouse.gov. And we all were in very siloed roles, um, in part because we didn't really, that was just the structure we walked into and we didn't know any better. Um, for the next Democratic administration, I would find ways to integrate all three of those offices to create a super-powered public engagement, public-facing um, communications machine. So you've talked a lot about the research at Equis Labs. What can people do if they want to read more about that? Yep. So we post all of our research um, on Equis Research, E-Q-U-I-S Research.us. Um, we just released uh, this week our second round of polling. Um, earlier this summer, we did a large-scale uh, study of 8,100 Latino registered Latino voters in 11 states. We just completed our first tracking poll, which was just north of 6,500 uh, Latino voters in 11 states, um, including three California congressional districts, um, one of which is California 25, Katie Hills District. Um, and so ultimately, we are uh, dissecting those results and trying to continue to follow the trends of where Latino voters shift and move on the issues, on their approval of Donald Trump, on their approval of Democrats, what issues they care most about, what issues they care least about um, over the course of the next year. And what's really interesting to see is kind of how things are shifting over time as really important 
watershed news moments like impeachment continue to progress or as other things kind of continue to move forward that change the environment that we're in today? Um, how does that shape and change uh, Latino voters' perspectives? Does it change? And what we found so far is at least in this first tracking poll from where we were earlier this summer, is people are more motivated and excited to participate in the upcoming election. Um, they are also really thinking hard. Um, you know, their interesting softness and support of support uh, among for Donald Trump among older Latino conservative people, the people who thought he thought probably thought would have been his base in the Latino community, and the people who are being more naturally inclined to support him, more seriously to support drop off for him, and even among. Hispanic evangelical women, we are seeing softness. I think only 13 or 15 percent said that they would vote for Donald Trump today of Hispanic uh, evangelical women in Florida. 30 percent are undecided. Um, so that's huge for, you know, and they and they claim um, his handling of immigration and his personal morality are driving that decision. So I think that just goes to show that where, you know, um, he is taking great strides to uh, double down on issues like immigration or doesn't care about the way he, his impropriety and how he acts either toward women or just the rule of law. There are a set of voters who are starting to notice that and for which they are turning their cheek. So is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, the other thing I would just say is there's a Latinas, uh, Latino women specifically, are really kind of strong supporters of, of progressives and a generic Democrat against Trump. The one word of caution that I, you know, am yelling into the void is that, you know, we see huge drop off um, in turnout among Latinas compared to black and white women, upwards of 13 to 15 points in 2016. And so there is a huge gap um, that we need to close. The, the Latinas are, are getting supportive of Democrats and progressive ideas, but they're not motivated or turning out at the level, same levels that they are supportive of those candidates. And so it's something that, again, this stuff will not materialize just because Latinos are angry at Donald Trump. There has to be a proactive strategy to reach and engage who they are, where they are, with resonant messages uh, that will move them and hopefully inspire them to turn out. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and check out more from the Georgetown Public Policy Review at gppreview.com. Thank you.